This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astra Taylor. Sixty years ago, the political theorist Hannah Arendt, an exiled Jew deprived of her German citizenship, observed that before people can enjoy any of the inalienable rights of man, before there can be any specific rights to education, work, voting, and so on, there must first be such a thing as the right to have rights. The concept received little attention at the time, but in our age of mass deportations, Muslim bans, refugee crises, and extra-state war, the phrase has become the center of a crucial and lively debate. Here, five leading thinkers from varied disciplines, including history, law, politics, and literary studies, discuss the critical basis of rights and the meaning of radical democratic politics today. The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astor Taylor. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I recently wrote an essay for In These Times about how we should think, as leftists, about gun violence and gun control. Mass shootings, as mainstream gun control advocates contend, no doubt confirm that AR-15s shouldn't be on the street. But they can obscure more ordinary forms of individual gun violence— interpersonal neighborhood feuds, suicides, domestic violence, and also the violence perpetrated by government, which through mass policing, incarceration, and global warfare has made armed force the preferred language of state, even as violent street crime has dramatically declined. We need a transformative politics that disarms America, state and citizen alike, and confronts the roots of violence perpetrated at home and abroad. That means a long, methodical, and radical political project to reduce not only the prevalence of lethal weapons, but also the socioeconomic conditions that encourage people to use them. This is not to equate all forms of gun possession. A gun in the hands of a Klansman, for example, is an utterly different thing than one seized by black people in self-defense. That's why disarmament must be universal, encompassing the carceral state itself, and take place on racially and economically just terms. A gun control regime that perpetuates violence is contrary to the cause of peace. We place precious few limitations on the production and distribution of guns, but then impose draconian penalties on poor black men who possess them. As Marco Rubio recently put it in a moment of accidental insight, our laws today reflect a time when dealing with gun violence was largely keeping handguns out of the possession of a gangbanger or street thug. This approach, a collaboration between liberals and conservatives, has led to huge numbers of people, disproportionately black, locked up for illegally possessing firearms that are otherwise permitted to circulate almost freely. Gun proliferation stems from the lack of genuine grassroots democratic political power in this country. For many, guns and a libertarian ethos of individual over collective reliance 
fill that void. Which is what NRA Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre is tapping into when he says that socialists want, quote, to eliminate our firearm freedoms so they can eliminate all individual freedoms. Disarming America will require increasing democracy and disarming the police outside of extraordinary circumstances. Citizens need not arm themselves against a government whose repression they don't fear. The converse is also true. A society that is not brimming with firearms does not require an armed police force. In fact, in several countries, unarmed police are the norm. Just as the only path to a nuclear-free world is negotiated disarmament between nuclear powers, we can only hope for a peaceful America if all sides agree to downgrade their stockpiles. The culture of violence that prevails at home has been in part forged abroad through decades of imperial warfare. Managing a global empire entails not only directly deploying murderous quantities of munitions worldwide, but also peddling armaments to allied armed forces. What's more, untold quantities of illegally diverted but legally purchased guns have become the weapons of choice amongst criminal gangs throughout Mexico and Central America. Stopping the violence will also require providing poor communities with economic power. Poverty is the indisputable backdrop of the everyday carnage that destroys lives in poor black neighborhoods from Chicago to Baltimore. Meanwhile, the specter of violent crime, which, contrary to Trump, has plummeted in recent years, drives gun ownership across the board, encouraging vigilante killers like George Zimmerman. Our gun culture is a morbid one. A large majority of gun deaths have been the result of suicide, the rates of which have risen dramatically in recent years. One piece of the rising number of white Americans whose lives are cut short by deaths of despair. A pervasive social despair that must be addressed rather than stigmatized as idiosyncratic mental illness possessed by monsters. Disarmament may seem a daunting task, considering the political opposition we confront and the fact that 327 million-odd Americans own, between them, more than 300 million guns. But it's precisely what we must do one step at a time. Pardon that disquisition, which is excerpted from my recent piece in Indies Times magazine, but the aim of my interview today is precisely to start looking at and analyzing American gun culture in a deeper and more complex way than is typically available in media accounts. My guest is Jennifer Carlson, a sociologist at the University of Arizona and the author of Citizen Protectors, the Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline, from Oxford University Press. Before we get rolling, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We put a lot of work into the show, and we can only keep it up with your support. So thank you, and here is Jennifer Carlson. Jennifer Carlson, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. You've done some fascinating research on American gun culture and how deeply it's about the making of a new kind of citizen. And there's a lot to discuss here, but I want to start with how the role of gun owner has these critical gender and racial dimensions. The the NRA's good guy with the gun who stops a bad guy with the gun is not, for example, a black man, as Philando Castile found out 
when, despite his permit to carry, he was shot dead by police in 2016. The good guy with the gun is presumed to be a white guy, and the onus is on a black gun owner to prove he is not a thug. Tell me a bit about these dynamics and what you found in your research. Yeah, I could. we could have this whole conversation about those dynamics. Um, so what's really, I think, illuminating about that example that you just brought up uh, in terms of Philando Castile. So here is someone who is, you know, African-American uh, gun carrier. He's legally licensed. He has been stopped by police dozens of times. He understands well how to interface with police. Um, and then he gets stopped. Uh, police... Uh, the officer who shot and killed him say, well, he fit this, you know, he fit the description of a suspect. Um, and, uh, you know, he thought that Philando Castile was reaching for a gun. And so he was afraid for his life. And so he shot and killed Philando Castile in front of his fiance. Um, and, um, a little girl in the back seat, uh, uh, Philando Castile's fiance's daughter. Um, so what I think you really get at, so, so there's the actual incident of, you know, how is it that, um, you know, someone who is merely reaching for their ID, uh, suddenly becomes so threatening that a police officer, uh, shoots them and, and how race, is implicated in that because police stop concealed carriers all the time. Um, it's not as if police are unaware of, um, you know, how to, how to deal with concealed carriers. There are over 16 million concealed carriers who are licensed to legally carry. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing they encounter. <laughs> exactly. It's a thing they encounter. So this is not a shocking circumstance. Um, so there's that set of things that we can certainly talk about. But since you brought up the NRA and sort of this good guy with a gun thing, um, what was really fascinating um, and illuminating in this regard is how the NRA, basically that week you had um, police killed uh, in Dallas. Um, you have Orlando Castile, excuse me, <laughs> killed in um, shot and killed by a police officer in Minnesota. And the NRA coming out very, very clearly um, in in support of law enforcement and really offering this, um, you know, delayed and very vague sort of uh, statement about events that are taking place in in Minnesota. Um, and I think that that, you know, so so why is that so important to think about the racial dynamics of this is that that really kind of opens this box of the, you know, uh, this this sort of. Uh, question about the alignment between law enforcement and the NRA. We hear a whole lot about conservative politics in the NRA, but we oftentimes don't talk about law enforcement. And I think that this is probably where we're going to get to deeper in this conversation is that, you know, kind of seen through a criminal justice lens is really um, informs a lot of the politics of guns. And it informs this question of, you know, what does a bad guy with a gun look like versus a good guy with a gun look like? And it's very much informed by, um, you know, the imagery of who a criminal is, who a quote unquote, you know, gangbanger, super predator, drug dealer, those are all racialized. Um, um, terms that are not just about sort of the war on drugs, which has been discussed a whole lot, but also about um, sort of a less discussed uh, war that you talk about, which is um, a war on guns, but one that is not what, you know, <laughs> the NRA is talking about when they say war on guns, but is really linked to um, guns in the hands of, of racialized minorities, particularly black men. And which is the actually existing gun control that's so impactful but so invisible that listeners can check out a interview from a few months back with Benjamin Levin on this very subject, which uh, locks up tens of thousands of of disproportionately black Americans for possessing the guns that for the good guy with a gun is just this foundational constitutional right. 
this brings me to something that I think is really interesting in your research, which is this question of, of, of who is the legitimate perpetrator of, of violence in the United States and how that is is framed and uh, and and legitimated. And the NRA, as you were mentioning, both both embraces the the lawful gun owner as the force of law and order, but also as you were just discussing, the state repressive apparatuses in terms of both law enforcement and the military. And in many ways, we can think of George, the vigilante George Zimmerman as this private extension of, of, the, of the carceral state in this logic. But there's a real tension and contradiction, I feel, between the support for the repressive government and the libertarian vigilantism. And we can see this from Ruby Ridge with the Bundys and the post-Sagebrush Rebellion West and with Wayne LaPierre calling federal agents jackbooted thugs in the 90s and with currently with this conservative mainstreaming of the right-wing uh, attack on the so-called deep state um, and with this, this commonplace gun enthusiast slogan, we don't call 911. So what what's going on here with this individual lone private gunman as the force for law and order, but also this worship of law enforcement in the military. I mean, I think there's something fundamentally contradictory about the American state. So I'll give you a little anecdote from my current research, which is uh, involves uh, looking at law enforcement and what they think about uh, gun policy, gun law enforcement, um, and all of that. Um, and so I went to California, Michigan, Arizona. I interviewed chiefs in those three states. Um, and on my very last interview, which was um, a uh, it, in Arizona, I walked into the chief's office, and in his office, he had a sign that said, "I plead the second uh, with <laughs> an assault assault looking rifle, you know, depicted." Um, and I thought, "Wow, this is really interesting because obviously that's a riff on I plead the fifth, which is not exactly known as a pro police slogan." Um, and here in you know in law uh, law enforcement office or chiefs. Uh, um, office, you have, you know, you have this other statement that's very pro-gun. Um, so I think that there's a lot to be said about uh, kind of unpacking, uh, you know, what what it is about the American state that kind of makes possible, you know, the particular kind of gun culture that we have in the United States. Um, so on the one hand, we sort of have this, um, you know, we, we have a long history of sort of, um, you know, a large degree of fragmented law enforcement, um, a large degree of sort of um, anti-statist sentiment. Um, but then you also have sort of these moments, um, the war on alcohol, the war on drugs, where you have this sort of, um, you know, vast explosion in sort of the state, in the state apparatus, enforcement apparatuses, um, and really a public endorsement of that. Now, um, I think that, you know, obviously we can trace that out and see how that's, that's highly racialized um, in terms of the moments at which that's happening. It's classed. Um, but I think, so, so I think that, um, you know, there's oftentimes this sort of, uh, you know, use of language like, um, you know, vigilantes and, and that sort of thing. And what's really tricky about the U.S. context, and you see this with sort of, you know, law enforcement who, for example, can carry their guns off duty, it, you know, as current, you know, active law enforcement and retired law enforcement, um, you know, thanks for to a 2004 law, um, they can carry their guns anywhere in the U.S. as, con you know, effectively as concealed carriers. And so that really raises the question of, you know, what's the lines between the state and private civilian use of force? And a lot um, of them bring their private guns to work, too, if they have some firepower in their personal arsenal that's not provided by the police department. Yeah, 
and so this is, you know, for example, in California, um, in California, there is an assault weapons ban um, that there is an exemption for active police. Um, and so police can get permission of their chief, but, you know, from their chief to buy an assault, you know, an AR-15 or what have you, that would be otherwise illegal in California. They buy it with their own money. Um, you know, it's not necessarily the, um, you know, the, the agency that's paying for it. Um, and so you can see how there's some really interesting, uh, interesting ways in which gun laws um, interface with what law enforcement are actually doing. So it's totally true that, you know, that's that that even the gun itself, uh, whether that is a private or public object, even that is blurred, um, which a lot of people don't realize. So I think it's actually kind of, um, you know, it's it's. I think politically there's a motivation to sort of carve out what's, um, you know, quote unquote vigilante violence versus state violence. But the, the, the sort of issue or question or problem with the U S context is that, that when you actually look at what's going on on the ground, it gets very blurry, very fast. Um, so, and that's all, you know, that's been the case throughout American history. So is there any way to square the circle or is just this for us as analysts an extremely revealing contradiction, the blue lives matter on the one hand and federal agents can pry this gun from my cold dead hands on the other? Well, I think for one, I think that they both are sources of, um, you know, kind of this, these visions of what what counts as danger, what kind of um, danger should we be concerned about? Um, so that's a huge piece. And obviously that's very much racialized. Um, I think that there is a sense in which, um, you know, you, you, and I, I think this is, this is sort of what I'm trying to parse out in my new research is sort of how, and again, I go back to that sign in that, you know, that police chief's office, how, um, you know, gun culture and public law enforcement as sort of these institutionally and discursively um, separate but interconnected kind of realms actually sort of reinforce the legitimacy of one another. So, for example, when I interviewed police chiefs, I often found that they would slip between the language of sort of a, you know, a a very sort of gun rights language and a public law enforcement language when talking about the use of force, for example. Um, So I think that there's something actually quite um, synergistic about what's going on when we think about um, the use of force, uh, you know, quote, you know, what is what is deemed legitimate violence um, by the state in these two contexts. Before I ask more about your research, I want to ask you a historical question, which is the, the, the racial exclusivity of legitimate gun ownership and legitimate violence obviously has deep historical roots. We can look back to settler settler colonialism and slavery. But a lot of it, it seems like a lot of what we need to understand about American gun culture really dates more to the 60s and the civil rights movement, rising crime rates, suburbanization, the urban crisis, the onset of the long economic crisis for working class Americans. How do you parse this out? Uh, Like what's new, what's old? And also on top of that, what are new ways of thinking about old things in terms of, say, the the romantic memorialization of of the frontier? So certainly, I mean, I think that yes, the 1960s is a is is a pivotal time in sort of unpacking um, what people call gun culture 2.0, uh, the concealed carry revolution, which is really gun culture that is defined by self defense. Um, so if you look at 
um, survey data, Americans have really shifted away from saying that they own guns for hunting to owning guns for self-defense purposes, for example. Um, that being said, though, I wouldn't want to kind of totally discount what happens before the 1960s um, and, you know, what sort of the the origins of this, this way of thinking about uh, violence in society and sort of the Second Amendment are all about. Um, and the reason why, you know, thinking, kind of going back to race and thinking about um, you know, who could lawfully own guns, who could lawfully possess guns. Um, you know, oftentimes we hear two things. We hear either this sort of insurrectionist argument, which is that the Second Amendment is fundamentally about the right to resist tyranny, um, or we hear the sort of, um, you know, the the argument that really has to do about with race, which is oftentimes um, stated as, you know, slaves could not own guns. This was about the color line. Um, and really it was, you know, this was about empowering uh, slave patrols, for example. But even before that, if you look before, and I think this is why I think the piece, this is the piece that I think also matters for thinking about the contemporary period. Um, before even the institutionalized institutionalization of slave patrols, um, this notion of sort of community defense, um, the idea was that any white civilian would be um, would be able to to perform what would later then be associated with slave patrol duties. Um, so it was actually a very kind of generalized, amorphous sort of understanding of, of, you know, how guns related to social order, arms related to social order, of course, predicated on um, what was a, you know, emergent color line. Um, so I think that's important to think through because there's actually not, you know, we talk a lot about people being policed. Um, and again, this obviously is what concealed carry is all about and what gun culture is really all about. But we, you know, this question of um, who are the policers beyond the police proper? Um, okay, so I'll come back to the 1960s then. <laughs> um, and so what you see in the 1960s is suddenly, you know, high concerns about all kinds of social disorder, um, race riots, uh, assassinations, political assassinations, um, you know, MLK, JFK. Um, you have this sense that crime is on the rise, that drug, that drug related disorder is on the rise. Um, and so, and you also have the Warren court at the time, um, doing, at least in the eyes of the criminal justice system, um, giving, giving rights to criminal defendants, um, which all of this is coming out, um, you know, kind of having the effect of, you know, this sort of, uh, weak state in terms of being able to deal with a problem of violent crime. So what we talk a lot about when we talk about the war on drugs and the war on crime is that that, you know, this this bolstered this this you know what would become the the carceral state, mass incarceration, um, you know, all of this. Um, but what also was happening at the same time was that Americans were, you know, using their their purchasing power to fill in where they, you know, where they saw the gaps with the state. Um, so, you know, everything from home alarm systems, cell phones, I mean, you can think of lots of things that are sort of, um, you know, otherwise uh, everyday consumer products that are, um, you know, suddenly being put to security uses. Um, and then obviously a growth in the actual private security industry. Um, so guns are totally a part of that. Um, if you look at the 1960s data on um, this this indicator, which is a good indicator simply because it's been asked over historical time, which is, do you support a ban on handguns? Um, in the late 1960s was the last time that more Americans supported a ban than opposed a ban. And those numbers have just gotten wider up until, um, you know, 
to the present day. Um, so, so there's kind of the carceral state piece of that um, that's really important. Um, and then, of course, you get the economic restructuring that that both fuels sort of concerns about crime, but also fuels sort of uh, shifting sensibilities, particularly about men's role uh, in, in American society. And so I talk about in my book a lot um, about sort of these shifting uh, bases of masculinity, these shifting pillars of masculinity as the breadwinning masculinity collapses um, and guns. This nostalgia um, for a both real and imagined Mayberry America that you that you write about. Exactly. So Mayberry America kind of defined by good jobs, um, housing, home ownership, um, the sorts of things that, um, and my book is based in Michigan, that, that uh, Michigan and Michigan unions um, really made possible as sort of the, the conditions of the labor movement at that time. Um, and, um, you know, as, as the auto industry grew and manufacturing, Michigan became one of the major manufacturing hubs uh, in the world. Um, that obviously in the and, and there were seeds of it already kind of disintegrating in in the 40s um but you know definitely by the 70s and 80s really falling apart um in terms of this kind of reliable um source of identity frankly in terms of becoming a provider for one's family um so yeah i'm naomi klein you're listening to the dig as well you should be and you can support them on patreon.com this episode of the dig is brought to you by our supporters on patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, translated by David Broder. In this book, one of the world's leading radical philosophers analyzes the failure of the Syriza experience in Greece. Over the last six years, Greece has provided the world with an open-air political lesson, The country's deep economic and social crisis has exposed the fundamental contradictions of the European Union, and indeed, the capitalist world as a whole. It has been a test case for movements seeking to put an end to the authoritarian anarchy of neoliberal capitalism. The Greek resistance to EU institutions and financial market hegemony offered a beacon of hope. Yet the movementist politics of 2011 could not build anything lasting and Syriza's efforts as a party of government soon led to impasse. For Elan Badu, it is not enough to mourn this defeat. We must understand why such a vigorous opposition could fail. Greece, in the reinvention of politics, argues that an opposition of real consequence must revive the communist hypothesis, the vision of an alternative state structure. The orienting maxims that this hypothesis provides light the way for effective political action. Written in the storm of the crisis, the interventions collected in this book offer a path out of our contemporary powerlessness. Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badu, out now from Verso Books. In other words, guns and immediate physical security they purport to to offer people have have filled this void left by a a dearth of socioeconomic security and in term, that seems inextricably linked to other phenomena like mass incarceration, which we've been talking to, but also the the post nine eleven American Empire national security state, just the sort of the the securitization of American life. Yeah, and I think that that's um, you know a really good moment to pause and sort of think through the relationship between masculinity and guns, because um, 
you know, there's kind of, there's a lot of debate about sort of toxic masculinity and, and, you know, masculine domination and guns and that sort of thing. And when I interviewed gun carriers, so, um, my research in Michigan was, was really spending time with gun carriers to understand why they carry guns, what it meant for them to carry guns in their everyday lives and how that impacted, um, you know, how, how that impacts society more broadly. Um, and what I found was, and it really goes back to this, this kind of notion of a shift between, um, you know, from providing to protection is that many of these men really for them, their guns were about sort of providing this, uh, you know, demonstrating their relevance and their utility to their families. If, you know, work or living in sort of two, two income households, having, um, you know, kind of bleak prospects for job security. Um, and these were even, even men who had secure jobs, but still kind of being, um, embedded in this, in this context of socioeconomic insecurity, really guns were a way to sort of say, look, like I'm still, you know, this is, this is a way to recuperate my position as head of household. Um, so I think that's when we kind of have these debates um, about the role of masculinity, I think taking that really seriously in terms of what guns mean to men is is really important. I think that's such a good point and that the, the political economic context that you describe in your work doesn't mean that everyone being shaped by that context is is poor or kind of materially in, precar- in a precarious situation themselves. I mean, after all, Trump... Um, who is emblematic of the disempowered Fox News viewer who closes his eyes and imagine is that, you know, he's this warrior avatar recently publicly talked about what his own physical heroics might look like if he had been in Parkland. You know, I really believe you don't know until you test it, but I think I, I really believe I'd run in there even if I didn't have a weapon. And I think most of the people in this room would have done that, too, because I know most of you. I won't ask you to psychoanalyze the president, but if you could say a little bit about what what sort of political culture that comment resonates within. Yeah, I mean, I think that comment definitely um, resonates with what sociologists of gender call masculine protectionism, which, you know, defines the good man as, you know, he who is willing to risk his life to protect, uh, you know, women, children, the vulnerable against outside threats. Um, so I think that that definitely resonates. And I mean, this is this is a very longstanding sort of uh, trope in terms of its history. Um, it's where the, you know, when we hear the concept of, uh, you know, a man's house is his castle, that is, you know, that, that very old term. Um, that's also tapping into this sort of masculine protectionism. So that that's what I hear with that. Um, I think that there is definitely, um, you know, I think that it's it's interesting because there's been a lot of discussion, obviously with um, you know the police, the the sheriff's deputies who did not enter the school, um, and a lot of sort of intense backlash regarding um, their actions as cowardly as you know um, that Trump's been at the lead of. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, the the sheriff, the sheriff in Parkland, yeah, said that he was devastated and sick to his stomach. Um, the amount of times that I heard um, police chiefs when I interviewed them saying things like, "I would be ashamed, I would be devastated, I couldn't live with myself if I was at a, if I somehow happened upon a you know an active shooting event while I was off duty and didn't have my gun on me, I would be I would be effectively I would be mortified." Um, so I think that that is actually you know when we think about sort of what is the the moral politics at play um that's something that you know th- this this 
kind of um, desire to see oneself as the hero. And also it, it really goes right back to um, what happened in Columbine, which is that um, officers didn't enter. And in fact, people bled out and died as SWAT was spending three hours, um, you know, slowly going through Columbine High School to, to get to where uh, the dead and wounded were. Um, so I think that there's something, you know, after Columbine, law enforcement really shifted toward this um, sort of, uh, you know, first responder, whoever arrives on the scene, get together a team, enter the building, run toward the shots, um, a, a very different kind of perspective than the contain and wait um, strategy that was um, that was put forth or that was that was in place uh, when Columbine happened. Um, and what I, you know, so so what does that have to do with gun culture? Um, it, it actually, I found in my interviews, has a lot to do with gun, with police's willingness to sort of um, entertain uh, the utility of concealed carriers. So this notion that, you know, if I'm there, if a concealed carrier is there, someone needs to be there to stop this threat immediately. So, so I think that there's sort of a lot going on in this statement about, you know, I would, if I was there, I'd run in. Um, and it's, it's this very powerful sort of, you know, cultural trope. I think it's interesting to think about, you know, what the conversations between Trump and the NRA are at this point. Um, a, a Time, you know, a Time magazine, I believe, headline just came out a couple of minutes ago saying, um, you know, this is the, the strategy behind this is just to sell more guns as, as Trump is saying, you know, embracing gun control, such as universal background checks and a ban on bump stocks. This is just to sell um, and inspire a, a gun buying panic. Um, you know, I think <laughs> that, that's giving other, Trump a lot of credit. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think that the other explanation for this is that, well, I think the explanation, I mean, one basic explanation is that Trump is very unpredictable in terms of his overall policies. Yeah, see DACA um, debate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, at the very beginning, uh, the very first few days after Parkland, um, you know, there, there's reports from the White House, uh, these, I, I, I'm not sure if they were leaks or they were official statements, they were probably leaks that, you know, effectively that, uh, you know, mass shootings are a relief from pressure for the White House, right? Um, and so, you know, part of this might just be playing into the news cycle to sort of, um, you know, distract away from uh, the other pressing pressures on the White House. So I'm, I'm not really sure where this is all going. I think that there's multiple possibilities in terms of, you know, why Trump is making the particular statements he's making. Um, and the, and the, you know, perhaps the explanation is really nothing more than it's, it's just Trump. <laughs> so, so yeah. And as with all things with Trump, it's really hard to know whether to just leave it at that or to dig deeper. <laughs> um, the the history here, turning back to that, um, that you write about, the deregulation of guns beginning in the 1970s really parallels the rise of neoliberalism and economic restructuring. And you relate that to a number of other things that other scholars have worked on, including anti-immigrant activism. And one thing I find fascinating about the and terrifying about the NRA is that I think more than any other organization, it has become this fulcrum for every sort of right-wing idea and really tying it into one unified politics. And this this list I have are all themes from the notes I took watching Wayne LaPierre's CPAC speech. Libertarianism, white nationalism, xenophobia, patriarchy, cop worship, anti-intellectualism, celebrity resentment, militarism, apocalyptic Christian fundamentalism, and the carceral state. They hate the NRA. They hate the Second Amendment. 
They hate individual freedom. In the rush of calls for more government, they've also revealed them true selves. The elites don't care not one whit about America's school system and school children. If they truly cared, what they would do is they would protect them. For them, it's not a safety issue. It's a political issue. They care more about control and more of it. Their goal is to eliminate the Second Amendment and our firearms freedoms so they can eradicate all individual freedoms. So why is it that the NRA, of all of these various right-wing organizations, plays this role on the right? Well, I think it has to do with a presumption that's kind of built into your question, which is that there is one NRA, right? So, you know, we have Wayne LaPierre, who is, you know, no stranger to making bold statements. Um, you know, he's the, <laughs> the originator of the jackbooted thug comment of the 1990s. Um, and now, you know, really thinking about him saying that with respect to, you know, federal agents and now saying what he, you know, and now now thinking about the relationship between the NRA and public law enforcement is really fascinating. Um, but that's one side of the NRA. Um, there's also, you know, the NRA actually runs an entire arm of the organization is is geared at public law enforcement. They do public law enforcement training. They um, they uh, actually offer a life in, a life insurance policy for active duty deaths for law enforcement. Um, they um, have, you know, all sorts of media that are geared specifically toward law enforcement and military. Um, and then you have the other arm of the NRA, which is really um, effectively, um, you know, you know, it's it's training, it's firearm safety. Um, there's a lot of Twitter discussion right now about um, the NRA's tax uh, tax status as um, you know an, an organization that's supposed to promote social welfare. Um, and the NRA, you know, they really see themselves, and many Americans see them as a service organization because their relationship with the NRA is you know taking a course from an NRA certified instructor to teach them how to you know how to, um, you know, uh, think about um, home defense, for example, for example, or protection outside of the home. 80,000 NRA certified fire, firearms yeah. instructors, right? Training roughly 750,000 Americans each year. Yeah, those, so those are the numbers in my book. The numbers are, are a lot higher now. So I think it's more like about a million Americans wow. go through. And this is, of course, um, you know, this, these are the numbers that the NRA discloses. Um, about a million, close to a million Americans, I think is the latest number um, go through training every year. Um, and there, I think there's closer to 100,000 um, NRA certified instructors. So that's something that I think is really important to think about that the NRA, not only is it a very kind of, um, you know, it, it's a complex organization. So it's not just the political lobby. So, I, you know, gun control advocates see the NRA and they see Wayne LaPierre saying all the things that you just said. Um, but someone who maybe just decided that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's because their friends are taking a gun, a gun training class. Maybe they, uh, were mugged. Maybe who knows why, but they decided it was a good idea to take a gun class. And chances are that gun class is going to be taught either by someone who is certified by the NRA or whose training is heavily influenced by NRA training. Um, and of course, if you take an NRA course, you get told why the NRA is a organization that you should join, why it care, you know, why this organization is not only about protecting your rights, but also um, 
protecting your safety. Um, and so you get a very different uh, kind of lens on the organization. And so I think that it, because of the way the NRA can speak to many constituents, um, and that's even, you know, even if we go to the national level, um, you know, Colin Noir, for example, um, he's an African-American spokesperson for the NRA, um, you know, and very much sort of, so the NRA has made efforts to sort of broaden their their um, their base, so to speak. But what's interesting is that they they're not, and this is kind of very Trump-like, you know, you can watch the videos of, you know, depending on where Trump is, you know, depending on the audience, his, his message is very different. Um, it's very similar with the NRA. So you're going to hear a very different thing from different um, uh, spokespeople from the NRA and in different contexts from the NRA. So if you're at CPAC versus, you know, a, a, a class in rural in a, Michigan. In a strip mall in like rural Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're in, you're in Detroit. Um, so uh, Rick Ector, for example, he runs an organization called uh, Get Laid, Get Legally Armed in Detroit. Um, <laughs> he appeared, you know, he's been on NRA radio channels. Um, and um, yeah, so so you you get so the NRA, um, because they kind of can accommodate these these many different organizational mandates um, and different voices. I think that's a big part of how you're, they're able, you know, how Wayne LaPierre can stand up and, you know, make a speech that if you really unpack it, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of contradiction, uh, no doubt in it. So. Well, and th this is the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is your, your really remarkable research on these NRA training, the NRA's training operation. And you write about how it's, they don't really teach you that much about what you might need to know about using a gun to defend yourself, but are really about teaching people on a moral, ideological, praxis level, what it means to be the good guy with a gun. And I think yeah. what you're arguing is this is the small p politics where gun culture is made. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what, you know, I, I whether you love the NRA, whether you hate the NRA, whatever you think about the NRA, um, you have to really appreciate sort of the long-term strategy that they have in terms of shaping gun culture. So they're not just, I mean, they are concerned with, with shaping gun policy, but they have shaped gun culture. And one of, one of the ways that they've done that is by making guns, not this sort of abstract, ideological symbol, which it is, guns certainly are, but also just every day, you know, when, when the NRA says things like, you know, guns are a tool, they've, they've created that social reality in the way, you know, through the laws that they've passed and pushed for. And so when we think about concealed carry, concealed carry isn't about sort of, you know, from my cold dead hands, you know, clutching onto my, my, you know, my assault rifle or what have you. <laughs> um, about being able to carry a gun on your person as, as part of your everyday life and, and making that a symbol of your willingness to defend life, innocent life, um, to defend your family, to defend yourself, even in some cases, maybe to defend your community. Um, and so all of these things kind of go into that practice of concealed carry. And what I found was that the NRA classes um, are, are, are one place where that meaning making happens between a person and their gun. Um, so yeah, you're going to learn how to line up your sights. You're going to learn how to very slowly and calmly shoot at a paper target. Um, but that's not really necessarily going to give you the skills that maybe you'd want if you were, you know, really concerned that you would have to use your gun in a self-defense uh, situation. Um, 
But what you will get a lot of information about, well, there's a lot about the law and the legal kind of intricacies of self-defense, as well as um, sort of the, the moral politics of, of what you're doing and why what you're doing doesn't make you a bad person. Um, even if it's, you know, and, and there's, I, I quoted in my book, some stuff from the NRA, um, you know, NRA handbooks that say, you know, this is essentially, um, you know, killing another human being is a repugnant thing to do from many perspectives. Um, and so, yes, this is a morally weighty thing to do, but ultimately your decision to carry a gun is about loving life and, and being a good person to, you know, who, who defends yourself, your family, your community. Um, there's one quote that says something along the lines of, you know, you've not just defended yourself, your family, your community, but you've, effectively defended a lifetime of future victims that this person had you had you not shot them would have um you know would have victimized which is a pretty powerful moral statement to make um and so and that the categories i'm not sure if they're the nra's categories but they're very widespread in gun culture what kind of person are you are you a wolf yeah a sheep so, or sheep exactly. or a sheep herder yeah, so there's sort of I so I use the term citizen protector. Um, there's sort of the the sheep and the wolves, and so you know one of the things that the NRA uh, you know gun training courses are doing is actually you know giving people the moral tools to think about how am I you know I'm armed like the bad guy, but I'm a good guy. So how do I how do I think through that? You know how do I think through my gun in that case? And so that's where the sheepdog comes in. So the sheepdog protecting the sheep from the wolf. Um, and that's actually, um, yeah, that's, that's very widespread terminology, um, in, in gun, gun carry culture. So. And, and the practices that you point to that they actually instill is not so much the, the target hitting, um, stuff that you would think you would be taught in a gun training course, but these practices of, of, of mind visualizing crime scenarios and situational awareness. Yeah, so there's a lot of emphasis on um, thinking, sort of training your brain, um, training yourself to think like a gun carrier. Um, so yeah, imagining scenarios, imagining, um, you know, practicing situational awareness, um, you know, being uh, being aware of those times when the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that you know, there's, there's a lot about sort of, you know, what to do, you know, if you, if you, um, you know, if you're in a threatening situation, you know, think about, you know, be sure when you go home from this course, practice muscle memory about pulling your gun out of your holster, um, you know, practice situational awareness. So if you, if there's a threat, you'll notice it. But this question of what actually constitutes a threat and how do you know if you're actually right, which this is a good good thing to end up on because it brings us right back to this this your first question, which is how do you know who's a good guy with a gun versus a bad guy with a gun? Um, and we know that you know when we think about the racial empathy gap, we think about the weapons bias, we think about you know all these sort of uh, a lot of it coming from social psychology, showing that there um, is a bias to see um, you know people of color as threats to see objects associated with a darker skin face as opposed to a lighter skin face um, as guns rather than as, you know, um, as something else. Um, so, so we know that those things are out there in terms of biasing how people might perceive threats. Um, but that none of that is discussed in the NRA courses. Um, that's really, at least in the official courses. Now, obviously instructors can add their own, you know, their own twist and some of them do. Um, but that is, is often left unsaid. And this question, the, the kind of one of the most critical questions, which is, is it a good guy or is it a bad guy? Is it a threat? Uh, or is it something, someone, uh, or something that, um, it is not actually a threat. Um, that is that is left out entirely. 
And that I think is, you know, so that's, and, and when you think, so then also to go back to this question with public law enforcement and the parallels between, um, you know, gun carriers and, and public law enforcement. Um, now there's a whole debate about whether, you know, what training can actually do, uh, to fix issues with public law enforcement. Um, but that has been the solution. And, you know, right now we have millions of Americans who are licensed to carry concealed. I, I don't think, you know, most of the gun debate is really focusing on, um, you know, background checks and banning particular kinds of guns. Um, nobody's really talking about pushing back on concealed carry. Um, if anything, it's it, they're talking about pushing forward in terms of arming teachers and national reciprocity and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so that really raises a question of, you know, if, if, you know, we are an armed society, um, we can ask how we want to be armed. Um, and, I think that if we're going to be talking about training for police, then we also need to be talking about what training should look like. Um, for <laughs> Which is ironically why the NRA formed in the first place in the, <laughs> after the Civil War, because Americans couldn't shoot straight. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, yeah. So and so there's yeah exactly and so that's actually going back to the and so it it raises this irony of course too, which is that you know. Know, if if gun control lobbyists weren't so focused on sort of you know what are arguably some you know and this obviously depends on the policy but for example um, you know there's evidence that you know well I mean it's it's pretty clear evidence that most Americans when who die from gunshot wounds are it, they die from handgun shot wounds not from you know AR-15s. Um, you know, so there's been kind of a particular focus on certain kinds of gun policies among gun control advocates. But really, you know, if gun control advocates were in the room with NRA, you know, NRA representatives and gun rights advocates really talking about what should training look like, we might be having a very different kind of gun culture. Um, and that's something that, you know, that that's an example of a compromise that, um, you know, isn't really on the table, but it's something that actually if we're going to have which it appears by sheer inertia that that for the foreseeable future we will have a con, you know a concealed carry nation that that's something that should be uh, should be discussed. So, well, Jennifer Carlson, thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Jennifer Carlson is a sociologist at the University of Arizona and the author of Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after considering that religion might not be the only opiate of the masses, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week often twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. We greatly appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. We also appreciate your financial support please offer some at patreon.com slash the dig.